Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. The American pull out of Afghanistan and the type of power the Taliban wielded after, there are these two big stories that don't take up much oxygen in the daily news cycle these days. You know, they get trotted out every time someone wants to score a political point, but at least I haven't seen much reporting about the people affected by the pullout. But we've got two books for you today that zoom in on certain aspects and give you a greater understanding of what exactly went down and where things are right now. In a bit, we'll hear from a woman who grew up under Taliban rule. But first, here now, Scott Tong spoke with journalist and author Mitchell Zukoff about his book, The Secret Gate, which focuses on these two people, an Afghan mother and a young diplomat, and details how their lives intersected in really spectacular ways on the day of the American withdrawal from Afghanistan. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, a people's history tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. When Afghanistan fell to the Taliban in the summer of 2021, it happened quickly. So American troops and officials scrambled to evacuate more than 100,000 people, U.S. citizens, allies, persons threatened by the Taliban. You might recall seeing TV footage of Kabul airport, tens of thousands of mostly Afghans desperately trying to squeeze through the gates to fly out. Well, there's a new book out centering on an Afghan mother, a woman's rights activist, and a young American diplomat in Kabul. Their lives would intersect at the chaotic airport. The title of the book is The Secret Gate by Mitchell Zukoff. He's an author and journalism professor at Boston University. Mitch Zukoff, very good to have you. Thank you, Scott. So a lot of Americans have seen the footage of the chaotic American pullout of Kabul airport. The political finger pointing continues down here in Washington. What made you want to tell the human side of this story, these two human lives? I thought that was the best way to sort of help us understand what exactly was happening on the ground. We can talk about the 124,000 people rescued, but until you get to know Sam Aronson, one young American diplomat who volunteers for this duty, and Omera Kadiri, this remarkable human rights and women's rights advocate and author, you won't really be able to attach yourself to the people and the chaos. It becomes a mass of individuals rather than the stories of people who you can identify with and learn what they were up to. Omera Kadiri, let let me ask you to talk about her first. Sketch out for us her early life story. Sure. As a young girl during the Russian occupation, her family had to flee to Iran. Her father was fighting the Russians. And then when the Taliban come in in the late mid-90s, there's an attempt to force her to marry a Taliban commander. And then she goes into a, a marriage that she hopes is going to be successful. She has a child and her husband decides he's going to take a second wife. And over this time, she embodies everything that we hoped for Afghan women. She's become educated. She's become independent. And so she stands up for herself against her husband and says, no, she won't allow him to take a second wife. And he summarily divorces her and takes her child from her Mm. and tells him, Siavash is the boy's name, that his mother is dead. And she fights to get him back. She regains custody. 
And now it's August of 2021. She's a leading Mm. women's rights advocate and author. And she's going to spend her life in Afghanistan, she hopes, advocating for other women. Mm. And picking up from there, as you say, that the Taliban are returning to power in the summer of 2021. For Omera, what are the choices before her? I mean, what does it mean to stay? What does it mean to go? To stay means to expose herself likely to death. There was a list that was formed by non-governmental organizations of women at risk, and it ended up having more than 3,000 names, and she was one of the first 20 names on this list. That's how big the target was on her back. But leaving meant leaving behind her family, her elderly parents. She was a public figure, a success, and so she was hesitant to leave, but she knew staying very likely meant death. Mm. So in the middle of this chaos, Omera ends up at Kabul Airport, where she crosses paths with the other main character in your book, Sam Aronson, young American Foreign Service officer. How does he get to Afghanistan in the first place? So Sam is home on leave after two years in uh, Nigeria. He's a young junior diplomat, and he had an unusual background. He had been a bodyguard for the State Department in a kind of brief earlier career. And so he puts his hand up and says, I see the chaos. I, we, you know, what you described earlier, Scott, of what was happening at the airport. They need me. I can help there. And so the State Department, he doesn't tell his parents he's going. His wife says, just make me three promises. You won't leave the airport. You won't do anything unnecessarily dangerous. And you won't be a hero. And of course, in short order, he's going to break all these promises. Yeah, he ticks all those boxes in your book. Because he gets there. And he realizes there's no way they can process the tens of thousands of people fast enough to get them out in time for the deadline of America's last wheels up plane leaving the airport. And then he realizes, well, I keep getting shifting orders. One day I can allow certain people in with extended Mm. families or who've sought a, a special immigrant visa. Next day I can't. And while he's there, while all this is happening, he has this really a crisis of conscience where he says, I can't keep doing this their way. Their way, you mean the the government way, the State Department rules? Yes. I mean, the bureaucratic rules that are coming from Washington are really completely divorced from the real situation on the ground. Mm. And so he's finding himself tearing apart extended families, literally ripping them apart at, at Abbey Gate or at North Gate or at East Gate. And it's tearing him apart. Speaking of gate, let's talk about The Secret Gate, the title of your book. Uh, What is that gate and how in the end did Sam Aronson end up using that gate? The CIA and uh, the Delta Forces and, and some Afghan army officers realized that the main gates are so overrun, they're not going to be able to use them to bring in at-risk Afghans, American citizens, green card holders, intelligence assets. And so they open up this secret gate at the far western edge of the airport down an unused service road that leads through a no man's land to a break in the wall. And from that point, they can bring in people with pretty uh, high regularity because nobody realizes this is a place that they might be able to gain entry to the airport. 
And Sam is sent to this gate one morning to try to help bring in some Afghans who worked at the U.S. embassy who were certainly going to face retribution by the Taliban. And he Mm. realizes this is the answer. I can follow my conscience here. And, And he was reluctant at first, but then he realizes I can use this secret gate to do off book rescues outside the bureaucratic lines. Hmm. Off book rescues. They've made movies about this. <laughs> I mean, this is the opportunity as he sees it that's before him, or perhaps the thing I have to do. Exactly. And he realizes he's going to break those promises he made to his wife. He's going to put his life and his career at risk. But mm-hmm. at that point, he just knows he has to do what's right. So eventually, tell us what happens between Sam and O'Mara. This is the last day of the U.S. evacuation, yeah? Sure. Networks formed all over the world trying to reach people who were inside the airport to tell them about someone they they had to save. And a network did form around O'Mara. Somehow, through a series of fortuitous events, an email reached Sam uh, saying, there's this woman. And Sam was like, "I, I can't. It's too late. But it's preying on him, and he calls back the contact and says, just give me her number. And he tells Omira, if you can come tonight and follow my instructions and get to this transit point outside the airport, I will find a way to get you. And in the end, he finds her. I mean, how does he recognize her? How does that go? He, it's, it's almost a signal from boyhood summer camp. He uses a, a flashlight signal through his fingers in the darkness and uses a borrowed pair of night vision goggles to see her while he's talking to her on, the, on a cell phone, telling her to oh. move toward the point where he can run into the street and grab her. There's gunfire going off, Afghan army officers, and he has to throw himself into the mix of this to grab Omira, her son Siavash, and she's a hero too. She, she insists on bringing her younger brother. She insists on bringing her laptop where her stories and, and her life oh. is. And so they connect outside the gate, and he brings in Siavash, her son, and then Omera and her brother, Jaber. So where are they now? Sam is, is back in Washington. Uh, he has ultimately left the State Department. He grew disillusioned mm. after this. Omera is here, actually, um, in greater Boston. She's doing a fellowship at Harvard. She's a brilliant woman. And Siavash mm. is thriving in school and playing soccer, and it's a, a wonderful outcome. And finally, Mitch, I mean, just what a, a great story and beautiful writing. What, what do you take away from this project? What lessons do you learn yourself? It's, it's a lesson we've all heard before, but I think it, it bears repeating that, that one person who's willing to take a risk and, and make sacrifices can make a difference even when systems fail. Sam proved that, Omera has proven that, and so the power of one person to do the right thing for the right reasons is unstoppable. The book is The Secret Gate, a true story of courage and sacrifice during the collapse of Afghanistan, and the author is Mitchell Zukoff. Mitch, thanks so much for the time. Thank you, Scott. Ah, the satisfying sounds of more sales in your business. And from the sound of it, your business is growing. But you shouldn't have to pay more to scale your business. With Stamps.com, you can import orders from wherever you sell online, find the lowest rates with the fastest delivery times, 
and instantly deliver tracking updates to your customers and stock up on supplies. Get started at Stamps.com today with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. This next interview is from a few months ago on the second anniversary of the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan. It's between Hirnaz Deepa Fernandez and Sola Mahfouz and Malena Kapoor, co-authors of the book Defiant Dreams. It's about how Sola grew up under the Taliban and pay attention to the words she uses to describe being a woman under the Taliban. Like instead of using words like scared or angry, she calls it a numbness and a purposelessness of life. Today marks the second anniversary of the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan. American troops withdrew from the country in the following days. Many Afghans living in the U.S. are taking stock of what happened to them and their relatives during those chaotic August weeks. A young Afghan immigrant has just published a memoir about growing up under the Taliban. For safety reasons, she uses the assumed name Sola Mahfouz. In her new book, Defiant Dreams, Mahfouz describes her life in Afghanistan during the American occupation and how in spite of relative freedom for women during that time in large cities like Kabul, she struggled to get an education and was confined to a compound where she lived in Kandahar. Against all odds, Mahfouz went from being unable to add or subtract at the age of 16 to becoming a quantum computing researcher at Tufts University in Boston a decade later. Mahfouz wrote the book with award-winning author Malena Kapoor. Sola Mahfouz and Malena Kapoor joined me in the studio and I asked Sola what happened to women at the time of the U.S. withdrawal. So I think when the U.S. troops pull out, there was this striking difference of how women's lives were changed just overnight. And over two years now, there's now 50 edicts that basically take every rights that women had, like going to school, working, and even basic things like going to a park. And so basically they have just erased women from the public sphere. And I hear stories from my relatives that young girls, they just think that the schools are going to open. So there's this just numbness around it. There's no this purposelessness of life. I mean, it's something I'm sure you feel deeply because in, in reading your book, it seems like when you were not allowed to go to school, when you were confined to your compound in Kandahar as a teen, that you hit a mental health crisis. And we're hearing that girls and women might be suffering. Do you think that we really understand the depths of what they're living? Yeah, I, I think that's one of the problems that we see mostly Afghanistan like, through journalistic views. And we, we just see like, okay, Afghanistan is one of the worst countries to be a woman, but it doesn't give you the, the window to feel what it feels like to be a woman in Afghanistan. Women are just confined to the house. Yeah, I would add that this is Malena. You know, in the U.S., there was a lot of conversation in 2021 when the Taliban took over about this new Taliban that was somehow going to protect women's rights, at least basic rights, that was going to guarantee an economy that wanted to join the international order. And that was the story of the Taliban that stayed in the news for as long as Afghanistan stayed in the U.S. news. 
And it was only after the world's eyes turned away that we then saw this systematic rolling back of these core freedoms for women. Women were suddenly no longer allowed to um, go in public spaces, be in workplaces, get an education. And so I think this anniversary of the withdrawal and the Taliban takeover is a chance for us to mark just how much women have lost and continue to lose and reflect on what our responsibility is moving forward. You know, I think that's what your book did for me as a reader, and you both kind of said it, whether it's just journalistic coverage or it's just we only know the big picture that life isn't really good for women and girls. Your book, your story, Sola, put so much meat on those bones for me of just what daily life is like. So I'm wondering if you can take us back, you know, some of your earliest memories as a little girl growing up, and and you basically lived most of your life in Afghanistan in Kandahar. Um, So tell us about that. Actually, I was able to go to school initially, and the school was environment was not intellectually nurturing. The teachers themselves were not educated, and they would beat kids uh, for giving the wrong answer or coming late. And I was one of those students that usually would get beaten. And when at age 11, when I stopped going to school, actually I was forced to stop, the, my first reaction was of that of a relief. But something we write about in the book, Malena, then is... Um, the fact that, you know, 11 is such a young age to process the immensity of that loss. But Sola's mother, on the other hand, felt it quite differently because she had been a student at Kabul University and then a professor there. Uh, she had been able to wear what she wanted, study what she wanted. But now she was watching as her own daughter couldn't even finish an elementary school education. And I think that's a strong theme in the book, that idea that history is moving backwards in Afghanistan. And there are mothers who have experienced more freedoms than their daughters ever will. And and to be clear, Sola, you were a child. You were raised in a world where the United States was in Afghanistan, was occupying Afghanistan, and, and made us all think to a degree, well, things are so much better for women and girls with the U.S. there. And your story really showed me that was so not true because you essentially had Taliban come to your door and threaten your father with throwing acid in your face if you kept going to school. So you stopped. And and then what happened? What did you do when you stopped going to school? I think it's important to realize that we mostly people hear stories from Kabul or Herat where there was progress happening. But like in the South, there's some changes, but not major changes. And so when I stopped going to school at age 11, you know, my brothers were going to school and I felt deeply jealous of their lives and, the, you know, they were intellectually thriving and I just wanted to be like them. At age 16, I did not know how to add and subtract. You know, I started learning English and math and that this was the first thing that I was able to do it all by myself and it was so empowering even though, like, I would spend hours of watching BBC or CNN and just, like, understanding one word but it just, I think, just being able to do that, that was so empowering that just kept me going. You know, t- tell us, because it's in your book and it's it's kind of mind-blowing how at age 16, you spent a couple years going from not being able to do simple arithmetic, like adding, to knowing enough to be able to take the SAT college exam. How did that happen? I think I just got so obsessed with learning and 
I think, again, it was just in general, it's sad, like women can't do it. And I just, when I was just able to do it, I think that felt like free, felt magical to do it. Because you were at home and, and Malena, you know, you wrote this story. Sola was doing chores, she was cooking, she was taking care of the household. And then at age 16, she reads, starts teaching herself English and then reads this little ad about the Khan Academy. That's right. It was this life of cooking and cleaning and basically existing for the male relatives in her house. But then on an off chance, she read a Time magazine that had come in from Pakistan that mentioned Khan Academy, this online learning website. And so using this extremely slow dial-up internet connection, she was able to access the website in the middle of the night, right, the only time that she wasn't required to cook and clean. And she set her sights on this this goal of getting to the United States. And she kept working at it to the point that within three years, she was studying calculus and college-level physics. And she decided she wanted to get out. And the SAT proved to be the only way she could make it. She tried to take the GED, but it wasn't offered anywhere in Afghanistan or Pakistan. And so she crossed one of the world's most dangerous borders into Pakistan. And she basically made it into one of the last testing spots in Karachi. And that ultimately became her to get out. Mm. Your story is so inspiring and, and heartbreaking. Like this time, Sola, when your mother was severely injured in a car accident as she and your father tried to flee Afghanistan after the Taliban took over. And I know this is incredibly difficult for you and it's an ongoing situation. So, so Malena, I'm going to ask you, when I read that, I have to say I felt a sense of culpability as an American citizen that what happened to Sola's mother might be put down to, I don't know, collateral damage because of the U.S.'s decision to withdraw. But I wonder if you think people fleeing Afghanistan who had terrible things happen to them feel that the U.S. government bears some responsibility for their fate. You know, I think it's a difficult and complicated question to talk about what governments have responsibilities. But the reality that that we try to capture is just the fact that so many Afghans had to watch their own families fight and, and get hurt and face death and injury at the same time as they were watching their country fall apart. And I can't imagine what that double tragedy must have been like. I wonder what you think needs to happen, Sola. My last question was was clearly so upsetting and hard, and, and I'm just sorry. No, that's the reality that we Afghans are living um so I think one of the reasons that I wanted to tell the story is, you know, what Afghan women go through to get an education, both inside and outside of Afghanistan. Recently, I heard a story of a young woman who got Fulbright scholarship, but then she was denied visa to the U.S., mm. to come to the U.S. And in my stories, too, like, I educated myself somehow. I took the SAT. I got accepted to universities, but then... You know, when I went to that embassy in Kabul, the visa officer just told me, like, he didn't think that I'm going to the U.S. all the way just to get an education. He dismissed you just like that. Yeah, it just felt like as an Afghan, okay, you're just desperate to emigrate. And that's all he saw. So I think one of the most important things is to shatter this narrow view that the world sees Afghans through. It feels very hopeless. Do you have hope for your country? I feel like there's a lot of young women that I see, they're still trying to educate themselves, like going secretly to schools, online education. And then they just say, like, as long as we breathe, we're going to study. And I 
think that would lead eventually to something. I don't think history will just like stay stuck in this one place. I want to thank you, Sola Mafus and Malena Kapoor, for coming by our studios today at WBUR. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And their book is called Defiant Dreams, Sola Mafus and Malena Kapoor, the authors. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Emiko Tamagawa, Todd Munt, Lynn Ardetti, Hiba Ahmad, Hadil Alshalji, Rina Advani, Monsi Kurana, and Adeline Sear. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.